Hey, hi, I'm Bonnie. Welcome to this podcast, Make Joy Normal, where we chat about homeschooling and family life. With my co-hosts, Elizabeth and Christina, we address your questions and topics in a way that can create more joy in our lives. Please submit any questions you have by email or voice message in the links in the show notes. If you found this episode valuable, please share it with a friend, like, or leave us a review. That's how we get the word out. Thanks for trying to make joy normal in your own life. Thank you, all my listeners, for uh, for uh, tuning into this podcast episode today. I am interviewing today Deborah McNamara, who I've interviewed before. Welcome, Deborah. I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you so much for having me back. Deborah is the author of Rest, Play, Grow, which is a book that I, I think is just stellar, and it's become one of my go-to books to re- recommend to parents who are mostly, I find a lot of parents sort of transitioning from sort of a behaviorist model to attachment, recognizing that this isn't working and and where do I go from here? And your book is just such a gentle, a gentle guide. But Deborah has written a new book called Nourished. And I am about halfway through the book and I've pulled out some, some uh, talking points from it that I just think are absolutely stellar. Thought I would start with this little story because I've, I've been given a great gift in my life. And that was that my parents really valued uh, family time together at the dinner table. That was, uh, and especially in an era, you know, I was raised, I was born in 63, raised in the seventies when latchkey kids and all of that was, it was becoming a big part of the culture. And my parents really were the guardians of the, of the family dinner. And so family wasn't just family dinner. Wasn't just, you know, eat your food, eat your vegetables, eat your whatever. It was a time to talk. We had cup of tea after we, my dad asked us about our day. It was just a beautiful time. And so a gift that I was raised with a gift that I've handed on to my family, a gift that um, my kids now are, are doing with their own kids. Right. And it's so beautiful to see that, that sort of cultural, um, what do we call it? Like a, like a lifeline almost, I think, you know, that we, we can pass that from, from one family to another. So I was kind of explaining the nature of your book to my husband and we're driving and, and I was sort of saying, you know, that, that the fa- we don't experience this, you know, because of the choices that we made in our family life. But, you know, the family dinner table can become a real battleground for people, you know, eat vegetables, do this. You can't have this unless you have dessert or, or whatever. Fussing with kids, not eating what's on their plate or whatever. And that was just has not really been part of our life. And so he's listening and he's kind of surprised, like, wow, I didn't really realize that was something people struggled with. And so we talked about it for a few minutes and he said, you know, kids just want to be nourished. Right. And I said, that's the name of the book. And he said, oh, that's cool. And so you nailed it. I mean, you nailed it in terms of the title of the book. But your book is also, it's a delightful book. It's a charming book. There's a lot of storytelling that goes into your writings, very engaging. But I think that it's a critical book as well. I think it's critical for us to understand this place where where we can meet the place of feeding our children can be a place where we grow in our understanding of attachment and our practice of attachment. Right. So thank you for that. It must've been, I assume it's been a lot, a lot of years in the works in your brain. It, it hasn't. And thank you for the beautiful summary. And uh, you know, thanks to your husband. Yes. I got it right. Yeah. <laughs> it, and it's so intuitive when you see it, right. And you're just trying to put words around what this is. Yeah. It's about nourishment, whole nourishment, body, heart, mind, spirit. Um, yeah. It is a long time. It was a long time in the making, starting with my own child, who is uh, what we would, what I wouldn't call it anymore, but picky eating right. and being challenged this way. And then realizing uh, going into the literature, like working with Gordon Newfeld, and he refused to answer a question about this because he wanted me to figure out what I was missing in the question. Like right. picky eating wasn't the question. There was something more. And so he sent me on this huge uh, he never thought I'd write a book about it, but <laughs> it, it, uh, it, it made me question. Like I, when I went into the literature, it was, it was so bizarre. I thought, why is nobody talking about attachment? It's all about food. It's all about nutrition. It's all mm-hmm. about the family meal as a prescription rather than understanding and getting underneath why the family meal worked yeah. when it did and when it doesn't, why it isn't. And so just getting underneath it. So it felt like I had to go in and overturn all these myths find words for it. And so it took, mm-hmm. uh, it took a lot of research. I would say it took me about 10 years, you know, Amazing. in and out of research and writing and interviews and lots of presentations just to try to find my way to put words on something that's so invisible and yeah. yet is right underneath our noses, like human emotion. Exactly. And, and so, yeah. 
Well, your, your book made me really reflect on, on, okay, way back in the day, you know, I met Gordon Neufeld, I don't know, 96, 97, somewhere around that was, he first came into my framework. And I wonder if it's the reason why attachment was so attractive to me was because I had this context that I was already already working in. And I, I, I just, it just made me reflect that, okay, maybe that my parents laid a foundation that was pretty profound, more, more profound than I even realized. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When attachment is working, it's supposed to work silently. It's mm-hmm. supposed to be what our culture just delivers to parents mm-hmm. and to the kids and eating a meal can be part of that, but there's lots of different attachment rituals we have. But if you can, yeah. what you were gifted uh, with, when I was listening to your story, what you were gifted with were parents who really believed holding on to their kids was important. And Absolutely. they used the family meal and food to orchestrate that. But I have no doubt that they also used some other things to help orchestrate that too. But feeding, Absolutely. Feeding, feeding we have to do three times a day almost. It's like one of the most common things we do. We don't put our kids to bed every time. Great place to practice. Right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, they really did. And for, you know, punishment was not really part of the program in my, in my world. Not that we never got punished, but it was unusual. And, you know, they would prefer just to talk to us about things and guide us and, you know, walk with us. And I, it, I think it was an unusual era. It was an unusual era to, to, um, to experience that. What I've done is I've sort of gone through your book and I've kind of pulled out some phrases that just I found really powerful and was sort of hoping we could discuss, elaborate, speak to those particular things to give people a bit of a a snapshot of what the book is about. And I would really strongly recommend people it's out, it's it's published now uh, to to get the book. Um, Is it going to come out as audio? I'm working on it. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, that's great. Because I think that it's just a great platform for young parents, especially to, you know, to throw on an audiobook. Okay, so here's the so I'm kind of going through the chapters till about halfway through the book, when when then we start to see, uh, okay, well, what do we do about this? Here's the information. But I think that we have to start with this context. And we, when I'm done reading the second half of the book, we might have to have another interview. <laughs> right? is the what to do part. Yeah, I know, exactly. you know, because that's really what we're craving. We want to know what to do. I remember when I read Gordon Newfeld's book the first time, I started reading first few chapters. Then I noticed there was a part two, like, oh, what do we do now? And I thought, okay, I'm just skipping to that part, right? Like, I, I, I get this. I get we're in a problem area, right? <laughs> so food was never meant to be served, divorced from human connection. Okay. So can you speak to that for a moment? It's a powerful statement. Yeah. Well, we focus a lot on the food that we're eating, but the context in which we eat and who feeds us actually matters more. If we look at the the science of human connection, we actually see that Abraham Maslow, that hierarchy of needs that we were all been made aware of through business, studies, psychology, whatever, you'd have to live under a rock not to know the... uh, the hierarchy of needs that Maslow put out with food at the basis. We need food to survive, first of all. What we didn't realize is that Maslow actually was quite a traumatized and wounded child. Uh, he was in a home that was devoid of human connection. And so he didn't get what science now unequivocally says, which is the base of everything that drives human survival and instinct uh, to survive is attachment. And so if we understand that and you see that that hierarchy of needs is not correct, then you understand attachment isn't just something we do. It's the context for taking care of our kids. So if someone comes to you and says, what do I do with a temper tantrum? How do I put my kid to sleep? How do I help them learn math? How do I get them to eat their vegetables? That that question has to fall inside relationship because it's only in relationship that our children are receptive to our caretaking. You can't take care of someone who isn't in relationship mm-hmm. with you. And so it doesn't matter whether it's feeding or sleeping or whatever. Now, discipline, you know, sleeping, even getting into the school system, we see that an understanding of attachment is really starting to transform practices. Mm-hmm. But the area that it has not transformed practices is feeding. It's astonishing. We are back in the dark ages with behavioral forms of, uh, of, of feeding our kids self-care. It's disconnected from human relationship. 
who feeds you doesn't even seem to matter anymore. It's, it's just, well, what are you being fed? Is it healthy for you? Back up a second. Yeah. You got to look at the relationship. Kids aren't receptive unless there's the relationship. So attachment first, food second. And there's such a simple uh, illustration of this in my mind that if you're upset, you either don't want to eat or if you eat, you get a stomachache, right? You can't digest your food. And so, so putting food at the, at the, as the pinnacle of our human needs, just, it seems like, okay, well, if you can't really digest your food or you don't want to eat, if you're, you know, in turmoil, that says a lot, doesn't it? It it does. And, And you realize, okay, well, what was nature intending here? How are we wired up? And there were, there were three uh, things that I found, but I'll just speak to one of them, like three distillations of the, the concepts through the book. But one of the, the ones that was profound when I saw it, what was profound to me anyway, was that food can't serve two masters. It can't serve to bring us together for togetherness and attachment purposes. It can't be used as a, as a tool to orchestrate attachment. And at the same time, be used as a tool to soothe emotional distress. Food either serves emotional distress as a wonderful anesthetic or a lack of uh, being able to enjoy food. You eat too much or too little, or it serves togetherness, which is what preserves food as the gift that it is from nature and whoever you believe nature was made by and a gift to each other. But if it's not in the context of togetherness and human attachment, food can easily be abused for the purpose of emotional distress. We don't feel our hunger or we feel too much and we try to soothe it with, with, food. with, yeah, stuffing it down with food. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's beautiful. We have, you have this phrase that you use, uh, that we must invite others to rest in our care, but they must be receptive to it. And I, I feel like this is for me anyways, learning about attachment. This was kind of the hinge point that, that, help to make it all make sense to me. But if you can just sort of maybe chat about how we invite, like what does it look like to invite? Well, I think we know this intuitively. So now as soon as we put words to it, it feels like it's, you know, depersonalized or mechanized in some way. But you know when someone invites you, you see their eyes light up, you see a real smile. We can actually have very good uh, senses, even though we're not aware of knowing when someone is truly enjoying being with us or whether or not it's just a fake smile. Do their eyes light up? Is there a sense of engagement? Is there a sense of presence? Is there a sense of patience? Is there a sense of generosity? You know, you can feel when someone's inviting you uh, when you get close. Hey, how's the weather? Hey, you know, what are you doing? Oh, you know, nothing. Leave me alone. Oh, it's fine. Oh, I like that color on you. No, you know, it's just this old thing. And you can feel there's receptivity or there's not, but we don't. Oftentimes what happens is we operate from the perspective of a role. We are your parent. We are your teacher. We are in charge. And then we think people should just follow. But that doesn't really, that only works when there's coercion and fear. And that's not a great place to be in as a parent or a teacher or somebody who has to have the heart in order to open the mouth, to open the mind whatever it might be, to learn your language, to be influenced by your values. You need relationship. Coercion and force doesn't get you very far for very long, and it creates distress. So, And that distress gets in the way of, of good, healthy development. So we need receptivity, and that comes through engagement, invitation, warmth. You know. You know when, when, when there's a connection or not. Exactly. Now, is, if we're a parent who has been been uh say parenting a particular way mm-hmm. and we we feel that you know change is appropriate and we we're you know attracted to this particular road and you know we can use we can use food as as the context here if the if we start to make those invitations mm-hmm. and they're met with non receptivity mm-hmm. how do we start to kind of grind away at the receptivity how, mm-hmm. what would be your mm-hmm. thoughts on that well, first, I would say, don't give up. Uh, that's a hard place to be. And when you find the generosity in you, there's a sense, of, oh, I just want it to land and I just want it to be fulfilled. And if there's been tension, as there is in all relationships sometimes, that generosity isn't always received. But that doesn't mean that what you're offering isn't good. So I'd say be patient and don't give up. Know that what you're offering is needed, is wanted, 
but there might be things that are getting in the way of it. And if food is one of the things that's getting in the way of it, maybe you have to find a way to, to deliver food and take a bit of a tactical retreat. Um, maybe, you know, you have to move away from sidestep some of the battles at the table. Maybe you have to change the way that you might be eating a little bit. You know, I had a, a friend, not a friend, but a client who, um, I had a friend whose husband passed away and her son couldn't bear to eat at the table because of what was there. Right. So she said, but I'm eating on the couch. Is, is that okay? I know we should be eating at the table. I'm like, no, there's no prescription this way. You're eating, you're providing, just go with that. That's okay. And well, he doesn't, his stomach, you know, at home, it's harder to eat. Well, yeah, there's a lot more emotionally going on for him there. Well, how does he eat when he's outside the house? If you go out for a piece of pizza, well, he loves it. He's, he's able to eat a lot better than okay, well then do that and go for a picnic or, you know, so it's okay to start changing some things and looking. The other thing I say is, so first of all, be patient. Second of all, change the things that you can, that you think might be, you know, controlling the circumstances, make it a little bit better, more inviting. And, um, and, and, uh, oh, there was a third one I had just, just lost. Hey, you sound like me. (laughs) What was I going to say? There's many things that we could say. Um, Oh, I know what it is. So find a window of opportunity. So, you know, when you look with your kid and you say, okay, you know what? They're hungry at nine o'clock at night and they want to eat a bowl of cereal then, but they're eating on their own. But I know that's when they're hungry and that's the only time. Well, can you get close to them then? You know, maybe it's not where you want to get eventually, but what are your windows of opportunity? Just put your foot into that window a little bit where it's easy between you. Maybe going out and going for a hike. That's easy between you. That's relationship. Maybe there's no food involved. That's okay. You're working on relationship. That relationship will bear fruit when it comes to the feeding process. But maybe we need to take a tactical retreat into relationship and those small little windows, those hobbies that you have. Where do you get the the sense of a smile and opening up? You know, with each of my kids, it's like fingerprints. I know, ah, yeah, this one likes this one. Then this one likes this. And you don't be obvious. You just kind of, you know, go go forward into that doorway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes with little kids, if they're making a big, you know, to do about sitting at the table or whatever, we used to throw a picnic blanket in the living room and, you know, have a picnic on the floor because it just kind of took, oh, suddenly it was an adventure and not, you know, sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, having to sit in a chair or whatever, right? There's, there's so many ways that we can, we can kind of broach those problems, right? And we, we're very, I think, as general culturally, we're very sort of narrow in the way we think, okay, well, this is how it's supposed to be. <laughs> this is how it's supposed to look. But you know, you step into another culture, and it looks completely different, right? Exactly. We've got leave it to beaver in the back of our heads and anything. Yeah. Short. And you know, Victorian <laughs> homes didn't even come with dining rooms. It wasn't even such a thing. Like we invented the dining room. We invented that formal kind of setting to eat in. But you're absolutely right. It, it, it's about the invitation. It's about the receptivity, the caretaking. It's about finding how we'll do this dance so we can get the food and the care into our kids. But I'd say give yourself a little bit more room and permission to try some things um, while fulfilling your role as a provider. But yeah, read a storybook, you know, play some music in the background, have a conversation about everything but the food and how many peas you're eating, change up the location eat at a different time. Like you can do a million different things. Uh, when it, There's so much focus on the food. We're so food obsessed. Now I love food. Don't get me wrong. I love talking about food. I love watching food shows and stuff like that, but we got to realize that food is secondary to attachment. We can't get the benefits of the food unless we have connection. So all this beautiful food is lost without the connection. And you can process your carbs a lot better when there are when there is connection so (laughs) they're actually useful to you (laughs) you know we were and I know you've had experiences like this because you address different cultures and whatnot but we love Italy. We've been a few times now. And, and part of it is just the, the joy and the expression around food and wine and all of that. It's just so beautiful. But we were taking a cooking class in a small town, kind of in a farming area. Uh, my husband and my daughter and myself, she was 17. And, uh, and it was just this wonderful experience. But at some point, so it was like sort of in the, you know, maybe one to four or something like that. We were doing this cooking class. And there was a point at which the, um, the family and like the grandparents and the parents and the whatever kids worked on the farm and whatever, like adult children, 
they all came in because there, like the big lunch is the big thing. Like that's kind of often the family meal is the big lunch and there's wine and it's a couple of hours and, you know, it's, it's so important and they, you know, they had been fussing all morning about making the meal for, and, and the workers that were there, you know, there was a big group of them all sitting around kind of having this beautiful lunch and laughing and drinking and, you know, just having such a nice time. And I thought, isn't that cool? And the the woman, one, she was one of the daughters giving the demonstration. And she said, I need to go join my family. Well, you're having your meal here. I need to go join my family for our family meal. And and I thought, what a beautiful thing that, you you know, you guys just, you, you have the next hour to just do your thing and, and we're just going to be over there doing our thing. And I just thought, wow, it's so, it's so beautiful. And that was lunch. Yeah, I think, I think the beauty is exactly that, that you walk into a food culture that's intact or more intact than we are. And you can feel the togetherness. It's not just about the food, but you can feel it coming together, that it is a celebration and draws them together. It's like, I remember reading in the research, there are some anim animals that basically you eat and they don't need to eat for another two years. Like a snake might absorb, eat something and, and doesn't eat for another two years. And I'm thinking we would be in big trouble if we didn't have to feed our kids so often because it draws them back to us. It's like if you had a song, it's the chorus in the song that you always come back to, that you always remember the song by, is that chorus, that that chorus, there is a return to. And so feeding and, and returning to the table, there's a beautiful quote by Leon Abrick said, the immortal gods uh, come to the table, have to come to the table twice a day. The immortal gods come to the table twice a day. And the question is, is well, why? It's not for food. They're immortal uh, because they're hungry for something else that is delivered in the context of uh, that coming together. And so food is a celebration of it. And of course, the body, the digestion, the nervous system, everything processes that food a lot better when it is at rest. And so we were meant we can't sleep without rest. We don't learn without rest. We don't digest without rest. Uh, we don't grow. Uh, we don't play without rest. All of the things that keeps us well, resilient, adaptive, and growing only happens when at rest. And so this is why it's astonishing to me. I mean, our culture used to preserve this and protect this, but how we eat is anything but restful today. It really just doesn't. When I look out there and you do the research, our relationship with food, how nutrition hijacks our attention, um, how fast we have to do this now how parents are time-strapped to uh, even, this is like, you know, the end of the day, oh my gosh, and I have to make a meal as well. And then nobody will like it. And then it's just, it's just stressful. And it, it um, we have to find a different way here. Yeah. And I think that we need to mingle that in, you know, like when we're in the culture, when we invite people to our home, allow them to experience that, you know, if it's not, it's, it's beyond their experience, you know, invite them into that so that they can carry that forward into their own lives, right? How important that is, you know. So I have a, I want you to elaborate on this particular sentence. Being conscious of love was never a requirement for its life-giving properties to be realized, right? Important phrase. Yeah, it's, it's really, the work of love and attachment was always meant to be invisible. And the reason for that is that when it becomes visible, when we think we have to earn it, when we have to focus on it so much, then it turns it in, it, it turns it away from something that is a gift that is given without any sense of repayment or benefit expectation. And it turns it into something that someone has to either win, could lose or has to work for. Like you think about the four-year-old, mommy, mommy, daddy, do you like this? Do you like this picture? And, you know, what do you think? Look at me, look at me, look at me. And every four-year-old that's attaching well will seek significance. The problem is, is that when you're seeking significance, you're seeking attachment. And praise is like an attachment nugget. It's like a little fix. And so we dole out these attachment fixes, but what that gets hooked onto is the performance they're giving and not who they are. And so any act of caretaking must be received as a gift. And the reason why we have rituals is because it returns us to each other 
without saying, okay, I'd like you to come over for uh, dinner because we're going to work on our attachment and we're going to pay close attention to each other. And I'm going to listen to you and I'm going to give you directions on how we're going to do attachment. Everybody would be like, oh, that sounds like work. I just like to, <laughs> to eat and have a few laughs and play around. But the more we have to make it work, I'm going to do this. I'm going to talk to you. We can't leave for half an hour at the table because we got to get our connection time in. And don't you know, you'll have better self-esteem if you sit here and not only, you know, as soon as you start making this connection, you know, well, I have this kind of attachment style or this is my attachment problem. And like it just takes it out of instinct. It takes it out of emotion. It takes it out of intention. It takes it out of invitation. You lose your generosity. Work is something that you have to, okay, uh, you have to put everything to the side to make something work. I don't want my relationships to be work. That's not it work. turns it into a curriculum. It does. And it's, yeah. that doesn't nourish. Curriculum doesn't nourish. What we're talking about that brings the emotional system to rest it's got to come from a place of true caring, true emotion, where we're coming into relationship with each other without an expectation of having to work. And then when we, when we don't get it right, that the invitation to connect is gone. Like our kids blow it all the time. We blow it all the time. How do you know the true test is you hang in there. There's still generosity. We find our way back. So just as we are nourished in the womb, we never had to be conscious that of our nourishment in the womb. We shouldn't have to be conscious every day of, you know, will I deserve my dessert tonight? Um, will I meet with a friendly face, you know, at the end of the day? Yes, you may have blown it a hundred times over, but is there still an invitation for togetherness? Yes, there is. Yeah, there is. Such a, that's a beautiful image, you know, because I think my, my the next comment I actually had written down with really plays into this because without connection, children become more anxious, agitated, frustrated, resilient, sorry, resistant, demanding, avoidant, right? And this kind of explains the why, right? So the more we we are sort of um top down, right? You must do this a certain way the more we're going to get that. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm sure you can, you can explain this better than I can, but, but as a, as, as, as adults, we have that same inclination. Like if somebody's, whether it's our spouse or our boss or our sister-in-law or our parents or whatever, as adults, you know, and you know, 60 year old adults, if they're saying, you know, you just, could you just do it differently? Could you just, I, I don't know why you're doing it that way. Could you just, do, we just get our back up, right? And we just, it would be different if they asked a question, you know, do you prefer to do it that way? Hmm, that's interesting. If they were just curious about what we're doing, but if, when we feel like every move we make is being judged, we, our back just goes up. Well, I think it's even way more so for kids, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we get defensive. We know that when we feel a sense of um, disappointment, rejection, whatever it might be, the emotional system says, ouch, this is going to hurt and up come the defenses and we lose our receptivity then. You know, I, one of the one of my favorite children movies was uh, Mary Poppins, you know, and, and you know, that, that cheery little song, well, just a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. And, you know, why is Mary Poppins, you know, the savior here, she comes in and turns this whole household around and woos the children and tames them and they're all obedient at the end and how does she do it not with sugar literally sugar is the metaphor for love for connection for warmth and she comes in with warmth and no that you know fussing and farting is not going to work around here for mary poppins but she sure brings them into the fold with her relationship and then everything opens up they're singing they're dancing they're eating they're behaving and somehow we've lost this when it comes to food. There's something wrong with the child. They're too picky. We've got to apply the right consequence. We've got to change the food around. No, let's look to the relationship. Yes, there might be some issues for a child, allergies. There might be some food sensitivities. We can't ignore that. There might be some developmental stuff, right? But, but still, relationship will make that work too, much better. Yeah, interesting you're bringing up Mary Poppins because the other thing that I've always noted about that movie, she's very sort of 
no nonsense. It's not like she's, it's because people often, when you say attachment, talk about attachment, they think that means the kids run all over you. Exactly. But actually, no, they, you know, cause there was lots of times when I just said, ah, no, we don't do that. I had this line that I would use. Oh, actually we're Landry's. We don't do that. <laughs> and it was just sort of on to the next thing. And they were allowed to be sad about it or whatever, but it wasn't like, oh, you know, um, Oh, you don't want to eat that? Oh, tell me about that. It wasn't like I wasn't delving into the problem with it. Just like, no, moving on, right? Moving right along. <laughs> and, and that's very much a Mary Poppins thing, right? It's just like, oh, yeah, we're not doing that. We're doing this, you know, and but she's cheerful. Well, she's she doesn't hold her connection for ransom. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, she's no fool. She's caring, but firm. And so she knows she's in charge, but she doesn't have to abuse her power by being in charge. There's a sense of almost arrogance, but confidence that she has, that this isn't her first rodeo, you know, this is her first uh, time on, you know, swooping in with her umbrella and that she just knows she's the answer, you know, and it's such a beautiful um, script for that, that provider position, which we don't have a lot in our culture anymore. I'm going back to Mary Poppins, you know, and how old is that film, but what a beautiful representation of a caretaker. And you're right, attachment does get associated with permissive types of levels of parenting, which I can tell you will lead to food issues as well, uh, and insecurity in the relationship. Permissive parenting does not bode well for kids' development at all. Neither does very strict authoritarian. Like, for example, the, in, you know, using the food example is, is that if, if or the child doesn't like that, oh, I'll get you something else, right? I'll, you know, like, we can't do that. We can't do that. Even if the child says, oh, I'm not going to eat this or whatever, and you come alongside and you're, you're, you know, loving them, you don't have to make them another meal in order for there to be appropriate attachment, right? <laughs> It's no, okay. and, and it, it's and it's not even about the food so much. It's about understanding what the child needs and providing for what they need, not necessarily what they want. Um, and so, yeah, we find ways around that. I mean, my daughter, who had a highly sensitive uh, system for taste and smell, I mean, I had to find a way to lead through that by making meals that just appeared that everybody would eat the range of food that was on the table. So, you know, we have butter chicken with edamame, so Japanese with, you know, Indian food, and it was just how we eat, and with yeah. some rice, and so there was enough protein that I knew everybody liked, there was enough whatever, I was trying to balance out the meal, and so we all ended up kind of just eating the same kind of food, and she eventually would eat, you know, butter chicken and get involved in it, but I didn't, so we we ma- we mask, we make visible the ways that we provide, so we know, you know, the child only likes beige food. Well, okay, we, we figure out how to do this. The child <laughs> needs carbohydrates. We figure out how to do this. It doesn't mean we stop serving green things, but we use relationship. We use the context to bring the child into relationship with green things and non-carb-ish things if we want that. And, you know, I always thought like, okay, you know how toddlers go on food jags, like all they eat is bread for like three months and, you know, and then, and then they switch one day and all they eat is cheese. I think over the course of a year, they're getting all everything they need nutritionally. Oh Let's not get too excited about that. Oh my God. That's just a heartache for parents. Eh? They're just like, I know. Oh, no. They'll only eat cubed chicken. Oh, well. yeah. Yeah, this is the thing, you know, and, and our kids, what we've got to keep in mind is that our kids are most receptive, want to eat like, be like, copy, imitate and adopt the people that they are closest to. And so if we can create a context around food that, that they are together with us, that we're gathering them first and then eating. And, you know, you, you just have to show enjoyment, true enjoyment for your food. Um, I really love these blueberries. These are in season. Oh, my goodness. They're so great. What did you put in this? Uh, today, you know, and it's not coercive, it's enjoying it, it's letting kids play with it, to squish it, to smell it, to little tastes of it, and not to be in such a big hurry, like becoming an eater takes time, it takes time, you know, and, and so, exposure, yeah. yeah, but exposure in connection, it's not just exposure, because we've often say, we'll just serve it to them 15 times, and they'll learn to like it, 15 times in a horrible environment, you're not going to, that's not going to become comfort food. you got to have the connection. It's got to feel safe to explore. Connection is the context. You could eat anywhere. It doesn't have to be on a table. The context is relationship. 
you know, this is a, I've shared this story before, but it just speaks to me about the, the, uh, the kind of purpose and, and goal of meals and, and sharing that I had, we had some friends years ago that had kids around the same age as ours. And they served a lot of, um, a lot of, they both love to cook, served a lot of ethnic food, spicy things, various other things. And, and I cooked, you know, fairly plain, like nice, nutritious meals or whatever, but fairly plain. And, um, and I thought, I don't know if my kids would eat that stuff. I mean, I hadn't tried, but I don't know. I said, how do you get the kids to eat that stuff? You know, like eat sort of unusual, more unusual foods. And they said, oh, we have no expectation that they eat it. We always have bread and boiled eggs on the table. And I thought, oh, so like they just didn't make an issue of it at all. It was just here it is, you know, there we're, we're having a meal together. And of course, eventually they all started eating it. And, you know, just, it's just, just a relaxed environment about what passes your lips. That's not our, that's not the goal here to get you culturally aware through food, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, it's just very organic. We can't forget that our kids come with a bias to want to eat and to be like us. And so, we just need to lead and we need to reduce coercion around the table. Um, that's always been when working with families, when there's food challenges, it's always been back to the basics, working on relationship, working on emotional safety. Well, how does this have to do with anything? Oh, just, you know, give me, give me some space to work here. Give me some time. And you see, wow, the kitchen seems a little bit more receptive or there's less tension or we're not really paying too much the, around the food anymore. It doesn't mean they're not responsible for feeding. Yeah, absolutely. But in the back of their head, they're taking care of that. And it's not so much in your face and you're out of the food battles and into relationship. And then you're like, oh, why is this working better? Why is it working better to get them to school in the morning? Why are they seem to be easier to put to bed at night? Why do they seem less resistant overall? Because you're working at the thing that bears the most fruit, relationship, relationship. And we had so much opportunity to practice with food, right? Which is it's remarkable. Show up yeah. Around. Yeah, they're hungry. Teenagers. How do you hold on to a teenager who's always, you know, has, uh, you know, wants to do so many different activities and is engaged in learning and whatever they're busy doing? They've got so much more autonomy. How do you hold on to them? Uh, exploit the fact that their body needs so much energy to grow. <laughs> and I got your favorite foods and you've got it dialed in. You've got all this time with this teenager where you, you know, their palate so well, who knows their palate like you, my goodness exploit the hunger and draw them in and you get your best conversations with your teens when they're receptive to your eating and they just kind of relax into it or if you're driving beside them and it's no pressure like you find that those times with your teens where there's no pressure on them and they're receptive to your caretaking oh, la, 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 they don't stop talking and they don't even realize it hey why would you spend all this time <laughs> no especially we often would get in the car with the boys and they would say can we have a burger it was just a thing right and so <laughs> if i had to drive somewhere with one of them i would just think okay well we're going to stop and get a burger because that just you know there's so much happiness when they're having a burger right <laughs> Yes, because it does make us happy to eat. All of our insides, you know, have that, those oxytocin and vasopressin uh, receptors down our whole gastrointestinal tract. It releases serotonin in the gut. It's like our bodies are built to enjoy food because we are taking objects into our body. It's actually quite a vulnerable thing. We think it's the most normal thing to do, but no, we've got to ingest something that could potentially hurt us or kill us. So it is got to be pleasurable. It's got, we have to have the trust of the people who are feeding us. That's why we need the relationship. And then our body rewards us with these pleasant sensations, which are then meant to be associated to the people who serve us and that togetherness. So then food becomes this beautiful orchestration, this gift, this orchestration of connection. I have a, um, another few more comments here. This could be a long interview. <laughs> the more punishment and coercion the parent uses, the more it backfired and escalated uh, food and relationship problems, and not only at the table. So you sort of described this in the positive way, like how these effects uh, can be positive when we work on relationship, the sort of spillover. But how might that spillover look? Because I think we often end up in a place we really don't want to be, and we really don't know how we got there. And so how does the spillover work in the, in the negative way? If you could sort of take us down that path and sort of explain how that happens. 
So we have an opportunity as we take care of our kids in anything to teach them about who we are as a provider. How do we help them with homework? How do we help them, you know, brush their teeth, put them to bed? But feeding is so often, it's generally could be up to three times a day, plus snacks if you include that. How do we show up as a provider? That is that is a lot of information that's coming around those actions of taking care of someone through food. And so how we stick our landing here is there generosity? Is there warmth? Is there a sense that the person is thinking of them? Or is this a chore? Is this a task? Is the parent really alarmed about food and, and everything, which then translates into the, is the world a safe place? Can my parent take care of them? Like all of the emotions that we bring to this task are infused with it. Is there resistance and pushing? Is the child always expecting us when we have an agenda to push them, to get it done, to use coercion, to get compliance? Are we uh, afraid and terrified about, you know, that, that, that we don't know what to do or that the child isn't obeying. And so we, they can see that they're too much, too big, too difficult, and they can't land on that parent and feel the security in that relationship. Like uh, there's so many different ways or we don't show up at all and it's passive. And the child is like, is there anyone there to anchor into the challenge that I was having with my daughters? I was pushing her. I was trying to coerce her to try different food and she became more resistant. And so that was how I knew I had a problem is I'm like, I don't have a food problem anymore. I have a food problem and a relationship problem. <laughs> the food and how, what I was doing was creating a relationship problem. And, you know, in my head, I thought, how, how could I be creating a relationship problem? This is all I do. Because I couldn't put the pieces together that it's not just food. It's not about health. It's not just about nutrition. It's about how she sees me as her caretaker and how I'm trying to take care of her. And what do I do when it gets tough? So the food, so sort of the food um, battle, for lack of a better word, uh, was, was manifesting itself in other um, parts of her day. It became a relationship right. problem. I, I, I was pushing instead of taking care of her. I was not looking for receptivity. I was using coercion. And that, no one wants to be close to someone who keeps doing that. If it's repeated so often, I became an adversary. So I could see the resistance start to emerge. Food problems can create relationship problems. Relationship problems also show up as food issues. And it's not just in the home that relationship problems can create food ones. You can have a child coming in from school who's got a bully at school. What's the biggest way we know a child's having problems at school? They don't eat their lunch. They have tummy aches. They come home. They're grumpy. They're hungry. Oh, they're just hangry because they didn't eat their lunch. But why didn't they eat their lunch? Are they not feeling, they're not eating it, but not digesting it? Like, why aren't they able to uh, take in food in this context or not process the food? They're under stress in this environment. So it's not just what happens in the home around food. There's daycares, there's preschools, there's schools that our kids are going to and our, you know, activities that they go to. We can't just assume that these contexts are all equal when it comes to feeling uh, safe enough in these environments to eat and to actually digest. And, um, you know, it, it that isn't the case. It's about who is feeding you and what are the conditions in which you are eating. Um, and so we've got to move it much, much bigger much bigger than this, uh, than just what happens in the home. Right. So um, you say here, there's no amount of meal planning that will save us from the fact that feeding others takes time and effort. And I would say for the homeschool moms that make up the vast majority of my listeners, this is going to be the thing, you know, is like, how do I do this? You know, how do I, how do I juggle? Um, we had friends years ago who said, uh, you know, the, the phrase, like if you, uh, I think GK Chesterton said it, uh, anything worth doing is worth doing badly. So, so what she was saying was if we have to have hot dogs for lunch, it's better for us to be together, spend time together as a family and eat the hot dogs than it is to, to stress about getting a meal on the table that is, is you know, I'm going to be all wound up about food all the time because I'm trying to, not that we shouldn't be working towards healthy, you know, nutrition, but you know, if there's a, a tough week or whatever, that that the focus should be on, on the togetherness and not on what you're serving them. And I thought that 
this this is just a great phrase, right? It's it it takes time and effort to create meals, to create a family environment. It certainly takes effort to to make sure everybody gathers this gathers at the table. Way easier to start that when your kids are young, right? Than to transition to that uh, as they get older, because because that's when they're really malleable and able to like that just becomes normal. This is what we do, right? This is what we do as a family. But I thought, you know, we can also sort of address this. What jumped out at me was that mealtime can also, meal prep is also a great time for connection, right? Even with very small kids. Yeah. The the relationality of food goes back into who's growing our food, where do we get it from, how we introduce our children to that, even if it's just dropping at a store, to visiting local farms, going to the apple farm, picking their pumpkins, whatever it is that we do to introduce children to their food, to helping with preparation or harvesting and cooking together and, and laying the table or clean up. Like the whole thing is about... Um, uh, about how we come together around our food. Um, and so it, it does orchestrate our togetherness in some ways. Um, but I had this in the back of my mind as I was writing this book and doing, doing the research, like we're in a different time and age where oftentimes both parents have to work inside, outside the home. We don't have the luxury of, I mean, I tried to make three meals a day, you know, one summer just for an experiment. And I was like, I'm like, I can't do this. I can't get any other work done. This is not my primary work. And um, I just, I found it was hard and, and good on for those that can and have the space for it. That's wonderful. But it's unrealistic expectation that we're going to make all of our food from scratch, that we're going to grow it, that we're doing, like, I don't know if there's some people can pull this off, but the modern families that I talked to today, this was not a reality right around the world. And so what do we do with these time pressure, you know, and what, and, and so I wrestled with this question, the answer that I have, there's a couple, number one is it looks different in every home. It was based on who's in the home, how, if there's more than one adult there, how they negotiate the response, responsibilities around food, childcare, work responsibilities. And in some countries, uh, it was just uh, who, you know, who was home first and who took care of it, who wanted to take care of it. And it was about the division responsibility. And it wasn't necessarily along gender lines, but for the most part, I would say women took the, the responsibility for this. But there was, I interviewed people, men who took the responsibility. And I didn't find any difference in the caretaking instincts that drove them to this. So number one, we negotiate these things in the context of our lives and our home and our available resources. That's number one. Number two, if something has to come first, connection should come first. Get the best food that you can, but stop with the food shaming, blaming, and judging and help a caretaker do the best they can to provide the best food they can for their, their caretakers. That's the great gift is to get the care into the, the provider's hands. There was a charity once I used to donate to before it folded down. I can't remember the, it was a, a country outside of North America. And they said, we have found in our research that the best use of your dollars is to give it right to the mother in the home. She makes every penny go the farthest. So we're not even going to tell her how to spend it. We're going to give it to her because she's got her children. And we know that she is going to stretch that dollar as far as she can. I'm like, you know what? That makes the most sense to me. And so, so support those caretakers in providing away. Some parents said to me, I go to the store, I get a prepared chicken, I bring it home, I put on a platter, I throw some vegetables or a salad and I call it a day. And then I'm spending time with my family, I'm spending time connecting. Um, I have seen people who, you know, interviewed people who were just making the like, this incredible food, but were doing it from a place of alarm from a place of fear and it was all this tension around food like oh my goodness it's a scary thing or you know you're not going to be healthy or it's clean or bad or dirty don't touch that and it was so full of these emotions that it was like it became a scary thing for uh their their kids but it was done like i mean the quality of the food was amazing but it was based from fear and not from generosity and that changes the whole equation we can't be nourished in that. And, and we have reasons for fear. Trust me, I get that. But sometimes our anxiety goes into that place and, and it becomes a challenge. So it, yes, time strapped. Yes. Uh, make all our food. We don't even necessarily know how to cook. That hasn't even been passed on. So some people are dealing with that deficit as well. Like look at the sourdough creation and the cooking that returned during the pandemic. Because people, you know, like they were longing and hungering for something to anchor into. And it became this thing where we had time. Growing a garden and all that. Yeah. 
Exactly. And, and that's wonderful. And yes, we should endeavor to go there. But if you are, you know, you got to find the prescription for your home, you got to land on what works for you. But yes, connection, and then put your best food that you can into the context of connection. Uh, and in that order. Yeah, that's so um, well ordered, right? When we, I think we were living in a disordered uh, environment, and it's so well ordered. Mm-hmm. So I have here part of the reason, this is a, a longer passage, I'm going to read it out. Part of the reason adults struggle with a child's picky eating is we have inherited the view of eating competency that is based on learning theory and behavioral practices. These approaches treat eating as a skill to be learned without considering how we become eaters, which we've addressed to some degree, the developmental needs of the child or the relationship of the person feeding them. We are the only mammal species. This is the part that I think is really powerful. We're the only mammal species to take so much time to explicitly teach our young about food, which can backfire on us. How does that backfire on us? Because it becomes work. You have to, you must, you should. We have an instinct inside of us called counter will that kicks in this resistance and opposition. Oh, I have to, now it becomes work. Now you have to delay gratification. Like the more you have to eat broccoli, the more you have to eat a blueberry, you know, the more you have to sit still, the, the more your body wants to move and you hate blueberries, you hate broccoli. You can't explore it. You can't have agency over it. You can't play with it. You can't have your own mind for it. You can't decide your own preferences for it. You can't discover your own sadie around it and how it influences your body and your stomach. And I love broccoli until I watched one particular show, a TV's television show that said, oh, you've got to eat your broccoli. Eat lots of broccoli. Broccoli is really good. Superfood. Stop being trying to be the boss of me and broccoli. And I love broccoli. But it turned broccoli into work. Right. It turned it into something that was somebody else's agenda. There are no, and this is the crux of it. And if you really get this, you see how this is, this is so significant to get. We are so concerned about what our children eat. We may actually have to change our diet because of climate change. We do have to change our diet because of climate change. How are we going to do that? Forcing, coercion, teaching them what's healthy, not healthy, rewarding, punishing, educating them on food and the food pyramid, which is completely unhealthful. There is no research that shows that any of that is effective. So you can throw tons of money and time and energy into those approaches and keep teaching nutrition all you want. It doesn't change the dial. What changes the dial? There's research on that. Experiential. Now, what does that mean, experiential? Experiential means we put children into relationship with these things that we know, with food, with land, with culture, with their ancestors, with stories. We play. We put them into relationship using what nature has always used for relationship, us and play, and we harness the power of that and you have connection, you have change. You know, you go, a child goes to daycare and they are with their friends and someone serves them lentils. They've never seen a lentil before, but everybody's liking lentils, is curious about lentils. The person there that is taking care of them loves lentils. They're like, hmm, I wonder what a lentil is. But they're not pushed, they're not coerced. They're like, hmm, and they're exploring it. Most indigenous food practices has always encouraged children to play on the land, uh, it's it introduced them to food through play. It's never been coercive. It's always been just an invitation. So growing gardens, uh, going and shopping and cooking uh, and experiencing food, tasting it, um, playing with it, uh, all these things have created a buy-in uh, for food. I want to tell one story that I didn't get to tell in the book, and it was about going to Ireland, actually. My home, my ancestors, uh, way back people are from Ireland. And I went to this medieval castle that my ancestors had actually built and wow. ran in the 16th century. Oh my century. gosh. And there was their coat of arms on the wall. Uh, the McNamara coat of arms was on the on the ceiling, uh, along with the O'Briens and 16 other families or whatever it was. And we had this medieval banquet. And during this, the medieval banquet, they played the old, they played songs, uh, Celtic songs. And they had this beautiful song called Dulamon. And Dulamon, I won't sing it. It's a beautiful, beautiful Irish song. 
And he said, this is a love song. And I'm not going to tell you who the love song is to until the end. So they be- this hauntingly beautiful harp, everything Dulamon and just this harmony. I'm like, oh, who deserves such a beautiful love song? And it was a love song to seaweed. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, what? What's going on? How does seaweed get such a beautiful love song? And I'll tell you why. Because when the famine hit, as he explained it, as I heard it, when the famine hit, one of the best sources of food was this bull seaweed, like a dark grayish kind of thing, full of vitamin C, full of nutrients. And the, um, especially being on the shores, an island, they took so much of their food from the sea. And so because it was ugly, because it was smelly, they had to create a love song to introduce seaweed. <laughs> To the people. <laughs> right. To the music. They said, oh, isn't it beautiful? Love and it. that was their introduction. It wasn't a food pyramid. It wasn't a breakdown of nutritional ingredients. It wasn't superfooded. It wasn't, it didn't even have a good marketing plan. It had a song. And it's just like, after the song, I'm like, I need to try some of the seaweed. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. What a great story. Yeah. What a great story because your ancestors were involved in it too, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know if you've read the, have you read the book, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn? No. One of my favorite American novels. It's a, it's a beautiful book and it's about Irish immigrants that come to New York. They're very, very poor and it's about, it's just, it's a great um, book about their life, but there are a few food scenes in it that are that are quite stellar. And but the one that really stuck with me is that once a week they were very poor, so their mom bought coffee once a week, and she would make a pot of coffee. And they were they were children, right? They were small, uh, you know, eight and ten or something like that. And the mom would make a pot of coffee every week, and they were allowed one cup of coffee every week. And so she would pour them their coffee and, and the girl is described, who's the main character in this story, would describe the smell of the coffee and the warmth of the coffee and sitting with the coffee and just this beautiful um, mm-hmm. uh, thing of coffee. But for her, she would hold it for an hour. She would smell it. She would absorb it all and she wouldn't drink it. And when the, the coffee went cold, she would dump it down the sink. And her brother was horrified that she would do this. Mm-hmm. And the mom said, no, I told her she could do whatever she wanted with it. And if she feels like, for so for the girl, the fact that she could waste it, right? She could both enjoy it, spend an hour enjoying it, and then just waste it. That gave her this unbelievable freedom with this food in, in an era when she just, you know, they, there was just nothing to spare, right? And this was her thing she could just spare, right? And I thought, what a what a cool, uh, I don't know, example of a mom just being okay, you know, even though it's coffee, we're not going to serve our kids coffee, but just being okay with you and what you do with this thing, right? I'm I'm giving it to you. It's a gift. Do with it what you like. Yeah. I love that. What a beautiful and profound story. And yes, that essence that she could do whatever she wanted with it would turn into a gift. I also think there's a, a, and I'm going to read this book now, is I think there's also another message in that, which the girls, um, that coffee fortified her in a time of great scarcity, because when she could take it for granted, when she could waste it, it would mean that there was abundance in her life, which would give her the sense of security in a time of great insecurity. And so the act of not needing it created uh, created that sense of generosity in her mother and that it would be okay. Because when you're facing food secure, insecurity and food scarcity, it's so alarming. And it's not just about the food. It's that my caretaker can't take care of me and provide for me. That's the greatest cut is that somehow the sacred bond, the sacred act of being able to provide for someone, a child gets a glimpse and says, maybe they can't. And so that creates insecurity, not in the food, but in the relationship. My caretaker has this glitch or this, and this is why it alarms us as caretakers when we can't provide food on the table because we think, oh my goodness, how can we get our, how can we be the caretaker they need and provide security? you can provide on the fundamental level. So this goes into the heart of it as these beautiful instincts to receive and to give. So this girl takes it with great generosity, wastes it, and it would be like, yeah, my mother 
she can provide. I can take a, I can take advantage of this. Yes. And she provides so much security in a time of great insecurity. Yeah. That was, that's actually the send chills down my spine. It's you're so, so right. And, and yeah, you got to read the book. It's, it's really beautiful, but, but uh, yeah, that's, you know, it just struck me as being something so such a powerful image, right? So I'm going to end on with this question uh, because you, the title of this chapter is becoming your kid's best bet. And I think all of us, I don't think there's anybody who goes into parenting you know, whether we meet that or not, we, we want to be our kids best bet, right? We do want to, we don't always know how to do it. We're not always equipped. But so, so what you say here is most new parents have more questions than they do answers. How do we create the conditions in which our child can thrive? How do we know if they're developing well, physically, emotionally, cognitively? And I think that I'd like to just leave the readers with with kind of a call to action. It's a big question, but if we can distill this down a little bit, is there a couple of things that we could leave our listeners with that, that are things that they couldn't ponder, uh, work on, um, be aware of so that they can work towards becoming their kid's best bet? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a great question. And I mean, I think, you know, to, to distill it right down to what we need to grow well and preserve our children's potential and to help that flourish, whatever potential lives inside of our children. We don't know, but how do we become midwives to that? Well, first of all, we work at, we work at relationship. We take responsibility for that. We, um, you know, try to be as generous as we can in that invitation, being firm and caring, finding ways to connect with them, find our ways to their side, finding a way to get through the impasses, uh, you know, to increase receptivity in our children. Um, we work at relationship, but we make the work of it invisible. Uh, just like It's just who we are showing up. I think the other thing that helps uh, promote a growth and we know is underlying all of it is that when we come to rest, uh, our children need time to play. And uh, if our children can, can truly play devoid of entertainment, devoid of, you know, uh, you know, things that have to go into them, like, you know, information or someone else's stories or, you know, video games or, you know, and too much entertainment and and stuff like that, basically helping our children have spaces to play. And if, you know, you've got a homeschooling uh, environment here, you've got so much capacity here uh, to create the context for true play, true discovery, true inquiry, um, and letting a child really embrace that in the context that you create. So that's the beautiful thing often about homeschooling is you can create these incredible environments for learning and playing, playing and learning at the same time. So that's beautiful. Working at relationship. It's really important that our children have their feelings. That would be the third thing I would say is that do we see signs of vulnerable feelings? Uh, You know, do we see the ripples of, you know, uh, frustration to uh, tears, to um, joy, to, um, that sense of uh, courage to venture out into the world. Do we see, you know, the range of human emotion that we need to see in a child caring deeply about some things? Yes, they'll get frustrated. Can they find their way through the fact they're caring? Do we see tears and sadness and missing and upset? Do we see the range of human emotion? And if we do, that's a sign of health. It's not a sign of distress. It's a sign of health. If they get stuck in particular emotions, they get stuck in their fear, they get stuck in their frustration, they get stuck in their resistance. And that emotion starts to become who they are and we see them through that then we've got to work at okay what's happening emotionally here uh, for a child how do we work at the environment how do we work at the relationship so we pay attention to the barometers of health you know we look at are they receptive to you know our feeding and sleeping well and um, learning well you know is our relationship there and intact and or we're trying to work you know to deepen it do we have spaces and time and places for play and can they engage in play and not avoid it uh, you know look for distractions or entertainment and do we see signs that there's vulnerable feelings like if i'm sitting down with a family or parents i'm looking for these signs of vitality mm-hmm. in a child they're my benchmark that's how i take a pulse when it comes to development and uh, and so the strength of relationship. Yeah. And so, and if we see things that are concerning us, then, you know, then, then turn to make some more sense of the child. Don't hit the panic button, seek to make sense of what you're seeing. Um, And, um, and, and then proceed from there, you know, rest, play, grow has chapters on all of those things from temper tantrums to emotional development to play. And, and that's why I wrote uh, rest, play, grow that way so that you could go in and, okay, well, what about discipline and how am I doing that? How might that be getting, 
way or what, you know, what, what do I do with frustration? What do I do with resistance and opposition? So we can take a pulse. Yeah. For those of my listeners, I know I've recommended it many times, but if you haven't read Rust Play Girl, I highly recommend it. It's available as audiobook, right? Yep. That yeah. Sense. We also have an interview that you and I did maybe, I don't know, a year and a half ago or something. And right. so if you want to get sort of a, a snapshot of it, that's there as well. You're, you have a lot of really beautiful graphics that really become sort of hooks you can hang ideas on, uh, on your Instagram. Your Instagram handle is? Uh, Dr. Deborah Mack. Okay. Okay. I'll put the link to in the show notes and also just tons of really, really good articles on your, uh, website. And so your web, just, can you give us your web address? And so that my listeners have it. Sure. It's Deborah McNamara.com. McNamara. Okay. So I'll put that in the show notes as well. So people can sort of know where, where to find you, but I find your graphics incredibly helpful. And I wish that when I had been, uh, you know, a young mom that I, I could have had something like that, that was more just these sort of tangible ideas that you can literally print out and stick up on your wall. And I think that's a really valuable, uh, a valuable resource. So something that, you know, definitely should be following you because there's just, you just offer a lot of support for parents at that really kind of fundamental level. You know, what do I need to be thinking about how to, how to think clearly? <laughs> which is great. Thank you so, so much for joining me. I'm just uh, so thrilled about this book. And when I finish the next half, if you're willing to interview about that part, I'd I'd love to do that. Absolutely. I'd love that. Thank you for your insight and your thoughtfulness. I've really enjoyed my time. Yeah. Oh, well, God bless you. And we'll, we'll talk very soon. Okay. Thanks, Deborah.